Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-51, Emissa She had a vast army, powerful allies, a personal stronghold, and enormous wealth, and was far more experienced in desert warfare than the forces arrayed against her, which were basic prerequisites when taking on the world's most powerful empire. The invading army was, even then, moving south through the intervening desert and she'd carefully selected a strategic site for her people to make a stand. The enemy ruler had a cruel reputation, even in the context of his people's brutality, and had spent recent history crushing rebellions with an almost mechanical efficiency. No matter what happened in the coming battle, she hoped to put up a valiant fight— so history might be forced to remember the bravery of Shamshi of Qadar. In 734 BC, a thousand years before Zenobia, another powerful Arab queen had challenged a regional empire. Not just any empire, but the Neo-Assyrians. And not just the Neo-Assyrians, but the Neo-Assyrians at their prime under Tiglath-Pileser III. Fresh from his conquest of Moab and Edom, and prior to extorting more tribute from Judah, Tiglath decided to take a few days to put down the Arab revolt. The tribe in question called the Qadar, had sworn him loyalty in 738. But their queen Zabibe had recently died, and Shamshi had taken her place. Her name, of course, like Samsi Garamus, came from the Mesopotamian sun god Shamash, and she ruled her tribe from the stronghold of Adamatu. Centuries later, as Roman Dumata, the site was used by Septimius Severus to anchor Roman control of the southern desert. 
The current rebellion had likely been prompted by payment or support from the Syrian king Rezin, who may have been hoping to distract the Assyrians from the conquest of Aram Damascus. And, well, yeah, good luck with that. But Shamshi may have been personally motivated by the prospect of freeing Qadar from Assyrian tribute. Like their better-known successors, the Nabataeans, the Qadari were traders in South Arab spices, and their resulting wealth had likely first drawn the attention of Neo-Assyria. The hit-and-run tactics of camel-riding Arabs were difficult to counter by slow-moving armies, at least until the military advances of Tiglath-Pileser III. Shamshi decided to meet the Assyrians in the shadow of Mount Saku'uri, and despite her courage and despite her hopes, the result was a foregone conclusion. In victory, the Assyrians took prisoners of war, 30,000 camels, and 20,000 oxen, along with 5,000 bags of exotic spices and altars to various gods. In a later inscription, Tiglath boasts of killing nearly 10,000 Kadari, then setting fire to the sea of tents that covered the field of battle. Shamshi, who'd fled, was easily captured, though, strangely enough, that wasn't her end. Instead, she was quickly restored to her throne as a Neo-Assyrian vassal. In fact, she and her descendants, Yatie, Te'elkunu, and Tabua, continued to rule as queens of Kedar through the next four Assyrian kings. It's unlikely Zenobia had ever heard of Shamshi, since no one living still read Akkadian, and even if they did, Tiglath's palace inscription had been buried for 800 years. For inspiration, she had to rely on the recent example of the Emocene women, far more successful in their own attempts to capture and hold the throne. And, just like the moment of her husband's death, Zenobia was back in Emesa, hoping to invoke whatever power had somehow secured their victories. Having just built a shrine to Shamash in Palmyra, it's highly possible Zenobia took time to visit the temple of Ela Gabal and ask for the sun god's blessing. And though Samsi Garamus was likely dead, there was at least a reasonable chance that whoever'd succeeded him as high priest was a member of the Emocene clan. For at least six years, under Odinathus, Emesa had basically been ground zero for Palmyrene control of the East. And it's fun to picture the staid and steady Palmyrene nobility residing in a city mainly known for ecstatic ritual worship. But it was the city's other attributes that made it so attractive. It was an ideal communications hub between all the territories of Greater Palmyra, from the Cilician Gates in the north to the Red Sea in the south. 
And in addition to the temple treasury of the Emesene sun god, Emesa also held the imperial treasury of the would-be Palmyrene Empire. So the city was both the strongest point to prepare for Aurelian's assault, as well as a place, in a literal sense, she couldn't afford to lose. As Zenobia called in her remaining allies, Aurelian did much the same. Zosimus records the emperor's forces as Dalmatian cavalry, the Moesians and Pannonians, and the Celtic legions of Noricum and Raetia. And besides these, the choicest of the imperial regiment, selected man by man, the Mauritanian horse, the Tianians, the Mesopotamians, the Syrians, the Phoenicians, and the Palestinians, all men of acknowledged valor. Along with the mention of the Tianians, Zosimus seems to be hinting that the three Syrian provinces, Coel, Phoenice, and Palestina, had all switched to backing Aurelian. But then he notes that the Palmyrene army was still 70,000 strong. Since the Battle of Ime was hardly decisive, it seems more likely that most of the Syrians were still supporting Palmyra. Zenobia's arrangements became more urgent when she learned of Aurelian's advance. As Zosimus notes, the emperor was liberally entertained at Apamea, Larissa, and Arethusa, which, as you may recall from Shapur's invasion, is just a dozen miles from Emesa. And in June or July of 272, Aurelian arrived on their doorstep. Zenobia and Zabdus had drawn up their army on a suitable plain in front of the city. Though the Palmyrene cataphracts had been virtually destroyed, they still had formidable cavalry. In fact, as Zosimus reports, at the commencement of the engagement, the Roman cavalry receded, lest the Palmyrenes, who exceeded them in number and were better horsemen, should, by some stratagem, surround the Roman army. Despite the Roman preparations, the Palmyrenes had likely been drilling incessantly under their capable general, Zabdus. They couldn't afford a repeat of Ime. They couldn't afford a second defeat. And there was absolutely zero logic to holding anything back. Once Zenobi had ordered the charge, Zosimus reports that the Palmyrene cavalry pursued the Romans so fiercely that the event was quite contrary to the expectation of the Roman cavalry, for they were pursued by an enemy much their superior in strength, and therefore most of them fell. It was a moment of hope, not a deception like the flight at Ime, but a genuine cavalry rout. And Zosimus notes that the Roman foot had to bear the brunt of the action. But, of course, the Roman infantry was always their greatest strength, especially when led by a man as experienced and feared as the Emperor Aurelian. Zosimus continues that 
Observing that the palmyrene foot had broken their ranks when the horse commenced in pursuit, the Romans wheeled about and attacked them while they were scattered and out of order, upon which many were killed. The palmyrene cavalry was apparently unable to come to the aid of their infantry, and Zosimus reports that the palmyrenes ran away with the utmost precipitation and, in their flight, trod each other to pieces, as if the enemy did not make sufficient slaughter. The field was filled with dead men and horses, whilst the few that could escape took refuge in the city. Behind the protection of Emmaus's walls, Zenobia knew it was over. Sure, she still had remaining forces, and sure, the gods might still intervene, but let's face it, Zenobia was proud, but she wasn't stupid or delusional. To have a chance of saving her empire, she needed to win the Battle of Emissa, and now that she'd lost, the things she could salvage were narrowing down to the personal. At the very most, she might save her city. At the very least, herself and her son. But any dreams of a Palmyrene empire had just died with the bulk of her army. There was little point in weathering a siege with the result a foregone conclusion. And besides, the Emesenes might just decide to surrender the city to Aurelian. Her counselors advised retreat to Palmyra, immediate retreat, with all due speed. Zenobia agreed, collected her forces, and led them off to the east. And now we come to one of those moments I've been waiting to cover for quite a while. Back in the episodes on Elagabalus, I promised an excruciatingly detailed discussion on the Emperor Aurelian's personal relationship with the sun god Sol Invictus. Well, my friends, get ready for some excruciation, because Aurelian credited his victory at Emesa to some timely divine intervention. According to the Historia Augusta, when Aurelian's horsemen, now exhausted, were on the point of breaking their ranks and turning their backs, a divine form spread encouragement throughout the foot soldiers and rallied even the horsemen. Zenobia and Zabdus were put to flight, and a victory was won in full. And so, having reduced the east to its former state, Aurelian entered Emesa as a conqueror, and at once made his way to the temple of Elagabal, to pay his vows as if by a duty common to all. But there he beheld that same divine form which he had seen supporting his cause in the battle. Wherefore he not only established temples there, dedicating gifts of great value, but he also built a temple to the sun at Rome. Okay, so two things. First, this is Aurelian's second divine encounter during the same campaign, so let's all hope he's, you know, feeling okay. 
And second, it sounds like he's crediting his victory to the help of Ela Gabal. Which, when you combine this with his later single-minded devotion to Sol Invictus, makes the case that Ela Gabal is basically Sol Invictus. Which, if true, has two fairly crazy consequences. The first is that Rome was apparently fine with welcoming back Ela Gabal as the supreme Roman deity only 50 years after Elagabalus' death. Which, hmm, well, okay. But that leap of faith is just a warm-up. Because this. If you conflate the worship of Sol Invictus with the worship of Jesus which Constantine will do just a little ways down the road, then, yeah, you've got it. The Christian God embraced by the empire, the God worshipped by most Christians today, is directly related to Ela Gabal. And since Ela Gabal was commonly conflated with the ancient Mesopotamian sun god Shamash, you've got a direct through-line from ancient Sumeria right down through modern Christianity. I wasn't sure how long of a pause to put in there because I really wanted for everyone to mull that over. And mind you, this is the current consensus take on the nature of Sol Invictus, before I devoted a bit of time to knocking the theory back down. Okay, so... If you haven't already, please find a comfortable chair. And just like the last time I covered this topic, way back in episode B36, I'm leaning pretty heavily on research done by Professor Stephen Hidgmans. So, according to the Historia Augusta, Aurelian went to the temple of Ela Gabal and saw a divine form. But the Latin term, Forma numinous appears to suggest a human-like figure, not the conical black stone of Ela Gabal. Also, the god that Aurelian later built temples to is clearly identified as Sol. And all throughout Aurelian's reign, Sol is consistently depicted in his standard Greco-Roman human-like shape, and never as the black stone. Conversely, Ela Gabal was never shown as anything else. Certainly nothing reassuringly human, or even some weird human-animal hybrid. So, if Aurelian saw a human-like form, what did he think he saw? Well, as Professor Hidgman suggests, since Ela Gabal was a local solar deity it's quite plausible that statues of other sun gods, Helios of Rhodes, for example, or Sol of Rome, were also present in his temple, and that it was in one of these that Aurelian recognized the divine form. In fact, Aurelian had later do much the same thing in his own sun temple in Rome placing a statue of Palmyrene Bell next to the statue of Sol. This all seems much more logical to me. Aurelian didn't bring back the despised Ela Gabal in the shiny new packaging of Sol Invictus, 
Instead, he saw an image of the god he already worshipped, the Roman sun god Sol Indiges, standing alongside other statues in Emesis Sun Temple, and pledged him monotheistic devotion in thanks for his glorious victory. So, are we good? I think we're good. To sum up, Sol Invictus was not a Syrian import. And the sun god who later became linked to Christianity was the Roman sun god, Sol Indiges. Aurelian just added Invictus, the unconquerable, to mark what he'd helped him accomplish. And that, of course, was no mean feat. Defeating an army, taking a city, and capturing the entire Palmyrene treasury. All in all, not a bad day's work for the would-be restorer of the East. And just in case that wasn't enough, it was also likely around this time that Aurelian learned that Egypt had returned to the fold. In conjunction with his Syrian campaign, Aurelian had put some plans in motion to secure the province for Rome. But exactly what type of plans he'd made are pretty hard to nail down. The Historia Augusta credits Probus, later to become the Emperor Probus, with fighting against the Palmyrenes who held Egypt for the party of Odonathus and Cleopatra. But since there's no real evidence of an Egyptian campaign, and since the Historia also credits Probus with defeating the Marmaridae, historian Pat Southern thinks the author might be confusing him with Tenagino Probus. While Zenobia had pulled her troops out of Egypt to fight Aurelian in Syria, she'd left the province in the trusted hands of her prefect, Statilius Ammianus. Shortly after Zenobia's loss at the Battle of Ime, Southern proposes that Ammianus may have opened negotiations with Aurelian. And within a couple of weeks, they'd reached some kind of agreement. According to Southern, papyrus evidence shows that by the second half of June 272, Aurelian was acknowledged in Egypt as sole emperor, with no mention of Vabalathus. Since Ammianus was retained as prefect for the rest of 272, it's likely whatever arrangement he'd made included short-term job security. Either way, recovering Egypt was a very big deal. And with his enemy on the run, Aurelian decided to press his advantage. According to Zosimus, he then marched immediately to Palmyra. As mentioned a while back, it was a week or so at an army's pace to cross the hundred miles. And for all that time, little respite from the burning sun, the hot dry wind, and the monotony of the landscape. Not to mention that this was during late summer, which is about as uncomfortable as it gets. According to the Historia Augusta, the journey wasn't exactly smooth. Frequently on the march, Aurelian's army met with a hostile reception from the brigands of Syria. As Southern points out, these were likely groups of Arab nomads allied with the Palmyrenes. But 
Interestingly enough, the Romans had Arab allies of their own. If you recall, among Zenobia's bitterest enemies was the powerful tribal confederation called the Tanuk. She'd supposedly killed their leader, Jadima, in revenge for her father's death. After that, the Tanuk leadership had passed to his nephew, Amr ibn Adi. And, as Warwick Ball notes, they rallied to Aurelian's banner at the prospect of seeing their enemy humbled. So, let's take a moment and sit with Zenobia inside the city of Palmyra. Imagine her mangled, tattered army limping back through the Emocene Gate. Her reunion with her now 14-year-old son, the King of Kings Vabalathus. Despite her efforts to keep him safe, while she'd fought Aurelian at Antioch and Emesa, all she'd really been able to do was buy him a few more months. She had no money to hire any mercenaries and no other allies she hadn't called in. Her general Zabdus disappears from the record, and it's very possible he died at Emesa. His command devolved to his colleague, Zabai, who was entrusted with the defense of Palmyra, which, as both he and Zenobia knew, had one pretty ginormous problem. As historian Pat Southern notes, Palmyra, unlike Tiana and many other eastern cities, was not enclosed in Zenobia's day by a defensive circuit of walls. A narrow wall had been built, enclosing much of the territory of the city, but it's unlikely it provided a secure military advantage against Aurelian. One disadvantage was that there seemed to have been undefended gaps. It is perhaps best interpreted as a deterrent to the nomadic tribes, to hinder their free movement and perhaps also represented a customs barrier rather than a defensive circuit. It's pretty likely the first order of business was erecting barricades to fill the breaches. But still, when confronting a determined attacker, they were about as effective as papyrus. The only real hopes Zenobia had left were the emperor's recall or premature death both of which were still remote possibilities. But, given his unbroken string of successes, it was also a pretty dispiriting possibility that Aurelian did have the support of some god who was bent on Palmyra's destruction. <laughs> 